I love you, church. Please open your Bible to the Psalms, the 30th Psalm. And if you're using the Bible provided in the pews here, you can find that on page 431. Let's pray one more time. Our God, open our hearts. Your word is all that they need. Please help us to grow and be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. So your bank account is bulging and your career is taking off. You got into your dream school. Your children are to be proud of. Your vacations are awesome. You never seem to get sick. Your friends, your apartment, your future prospects, your options, your looks, your education, they are all coming together for the most part just the way you would like it. Is that you? It may be. But that is rare. If that is not now you, was that once you? The world was going your way? Or perhaps, is that where you want your life to go? I think the answer to that is yes. We want prosperity. We want excellent things. We want security. The pursuit of happiness is even one of our culture's founding principles. I don't think there are any of us in this room who would not want those things for their lives. Well, God in his infinite wisdom has given us scripture this morning that centers on these questions, questions of prosperity and its loss and its regain, and then how to keep it. So let me read for you Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, and to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. 
We spent the last several months in our Sunday morning services in 2 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel, in the story of King David's life and God's dealings in it. And we've just concluded the story of that tragic and bloody crippling of the prosperous and shining kingdom of Israel under David's rule. The body blow of David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then his murdering of her husband, Uriah, triggered wave after wave of division and rebellion and treachery. First rape, then murder, then military coup, then war, then secession, and finally a fractured kingdom glued together only for another generation or two. And somewhere in this backdrop, somewhere in the reign of David, we're not sure when, it seems that he wrote this psalm. And there is a story embedded in this this psalm, a story of the rise and fall and rise again in the life of David. So I have three points for us this morning to guide us through this story. And our first point is, beware of prosperity. Beware prosperity. We're going to track through the psalm in sequence of of time, uh, taking the events uh, recorded in order, in order of time, and that actually begins then in verse 6. It seems to be the beginning of the thought process that David is going through. He's looking back at a point in his life and remembering his circumstances and his heart. And he recalls, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. So life has, at least recently, gone very well for David. His kingdom is secure. His possessions are many. Past conflicts have ceased. Rebels and rebellions have been put down. The will of the people is with him. His reputation and his accomplishments, his decisions, they're all praised and promoted and followed. The world was going his way. The land flowed with milk and honey. David has found prosperity. And all that prosperity is full of good things. These things are to be sought after. Kingdom flourishing, safety, good government, peace. We pray for these things. But beware, because David in his prosperity began his fall. He said to himself, I shall never be moved. The proverb says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high wall in his imagination. As David surveyed all the grandeur of his life, he fancied himself secure. Perhaps it was that moment, that stroll on his roof, a look at a beautiful woman, the wife of Uriah, and perhaps a thought, I can do this. God favors me. I shall never be moved. And in one sense, indeed, he was secure. Verse 7 affirms it perhaps smugly, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. It was the Lord's gift to him that he had that kind of prosperity. Yet in that short statement, I said in my prosperity I shall never be moved, we can see where David's heart 
slipped. We see how it, how it shifted. It, in his imagination, in his prosperity, David thought he would never be moved. When in fact, his heart had already long gone. It had moved away from the God of prosperity, the God who builds his mountain strong. In David's heart, God was no longer the God of prosperity. Prosperity was now his God. Prosperity was now the source of his prosperity. That is what had changed. There's a hint of ego in that line. In my prosperity, I shall never be moved. As one of the world's great living poets has said, it was the best of times, it was the worst of crimes. Jesus tells a similar story of a rich fool in Luke chapter 12, a man of tremendous prosperity whose prosperity tempts him to trust in his prosperity and then impoverish himself before God. This prosperous man says, as Jesus told it, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. David had grown poor toward God. In David's heart of hearts, his prosperity was not in God. It was in prosperity itself. That is the trick of prosperity. That is its guile. Because prosperity, if we are not careful with it, can move our hearts off of the one who brings it, the one who sustains it, off of the sovereign and gracious Lord, and only on to the gift itself. It's like a magnet for our hearts. If we don't have it, we want it. If we have it, we often want more. And to get it or to keep it, we are all too easily going to rely upon it. Oh, friends, beware the tricks of prosperity. Beware its intoxication. Beware the gift, any gift, lest it pull your heart away from the giver. Because God loves us too much to let that last. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and the giver of gifts will not allow himself to be overshadowed by the gift for too long. So beware prosperity. David goes on in verse 7. You hid your face. I was dismayed. The language here is so spare it is almost breathless. You can see David's mouth agape. It is the point that he realizes that his mountain is really hollow. It is imploding, and the veil falls from his eyes. And verse 7 is the sound of a guilty and frigid realization that he is totally vulnerable and exposed. What happened? What happened to him? We only know for sure what the psalm tells us. We know from verse 1 that he had an enemy that threatened his prosperity and was gloating over his fall. Maybe this is one of David's long list of foes throughout his reign. Ishbosheth, Absalom, Ahithophel, Shimei, Sheba, to name just a few from within the kingdom. It also seems from verse 2 
that he had gotten sick or injured because he recalls how God healed him. Maybe that's figurative in the context. But he also seems to be referring to a spiritual enemy, an enemy of his soul in verse 3. Maybe even Satan himself. Because there was an episode in David's life where he took a direct hit from the schemes of Satan, the scriptures tells us. We won't go into detail here, but I'll summarize that place, that story for you that you can read on your own in First Chronicles chapter 21. You can jot that down and read it this afternoon. The story really fits our problem well here because Satan at some point incited David to trust in prosperity for prosperity rather than the God who gave it. It tells how Satan put a little bug in his ear, a little thought into his heart so that David ordered his general Joab to count the full fighting strength of the kingdom. He ordered a census of all able-bodied men. And God was angry with this. Apparently, David had grown faithless by choosing to number his army. And God brought terrific judgment. He sent a plague through an angel who infected and killed tens of thousands of the very fighting men that David had just counted in his census. And this angel of pestilence then turned toward Jerusalem. It says to destroy it. David was in sackcloth. He was mourning his sin and pleading with the Lord for mercy on his people. And it was just then that God stayed the wrath of his destroying angel. You may have noticed the title of the psalm, the psalm of David at the dedication of the temple, and thought, what temple? Well, the place in 1 Chronicles 21 where God stopped the angel of pestilence that I've just described and brought mercy, that was called the, the threshing floor of Ornan. There was a, a farmer who had a threshing floor right there in Jerusalem, and David bought that land right then in the middle of that episode. And that plot became the site where Solomon, David's son, built the temple. Perhaps that's why the temple dedication is referenced. We're not sure, but that episode in David's life matches this psalm quite well with distress and dismay, a threat of destruction, and God's mercy stayed at the place of sacrifice, the place of God's presence, even what would become the temple. So whether this psalm is a memory of David's fall from military might at the threshing floor of Ornan, or his fall with Bathsheba, or even another time in his life, we see that David's suffering was physical, it was spiritual, it was relational, but it was also lethal. David almost died. David has fallen into the hands of God, the very hands that once made his mountain stand strong, and it feels now like death. It is not only that his prosperity has evaporated like a mist, but he is now so low, he is staring at the grave. You can see that here in verses 8 through 10, where he pleads with the Lord for his life. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? 
Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. David is wrestling with death and he is crying. He is begging God for mercy. That is his first response. Pleading, asking, calling on God by his covenant name, Yahweh, for mercy. That is what the Lord in all caps in your Bibles means. It's referring to that special covenant name of God, Yahweh. But then David shifts strategies in verse 9. He tries instead to reason with God. What good would it be if I died, Lord? Who's going to go to worship you then if I am gone? You are the covenant God, the God whose love endures forever. If you let me go, what would that say about you? If death takes me down, won't that make you look faithless? These are good questions. And there is a place for this kind of talk in the life of every believer. We have a relationship with God, and we can ask, why God? I do not understand God. I don't see how this fits with what I know about you. And God speaks to us in these questions. He answers them often through Scripture itself and always through faith. For David, he ends up with the answer, and we'll see it. It's here embedded in this psalm. But for us now, we can see that we should reason with God like David when confronted with affliction. But for David... Right here, distress, staring at the face of death, ends up like an acid to reason. It dissolves the thoughts into the very primal elements of need. So in verse 10, he finally just breaks down and he just cries, Hear me, Lord. Have mercy, Lord. Help me. Help me. Help me. He repeats his cry to Yahweh from verse 8. But he amplifies it this time, calling out God's name now twice. O Lord, O Lord. That is how Hebrews shout. David's cry to God has intensified as his crisis has deepened. And it's an intensity that is fueled by the force of his fall. Remember where David stood at the beginning of this story back in verse 6. In his self-deluded fortress of prosperity, he is at the top of his game. But as Jesus said, then the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Beware prosperity from a lofty height. The force of the fall is very great. And that takes us to our second point. It is that God gets glory on the way down and on the way up. I don't know why, but we in this church seem to remember this proverb very well. I've heard many of us say it. I've said it. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And David's Psalm 30 is a song for this proverb. But that proverb has a hopeful neighbor. The very next verse, verse 19 It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. David's spirit has been brought low and his his cries to the Lord, yes, even his, his, his gasps for the Lord, his felt need for the Lord has gotten greater. 
And so things are better than they were before for David. In David's memory of this living nightmare that has been, he's been in, you do, do you see who he sees at every turn? He is prosperous. And at least in word, he acknowledges that is from the Lord. But then he's dismayed. But he sees this too as from the Lord. But the emphasis is now different. David once paid lip service to the Lord's favor and his prosperity, but now he can't stop saying the Lord's name. This begins a kind of breakout of God's glory. The God who once praised is now getting praise, more and more praise, because David now sees that the Lord is not only the God of prosperity, but also the God of catastrophe and even of death, even the death of the saints. If God were not sovereign over these things, David would not cry to him for help. And the Lord gets glory from giving him this humbling grace, this humbling realization. He gets glory from this great reversal down in David's life. David has begun to shout his name. Oh Lord, oh Lord, help me. But that is not all. Because the Lord gets glory from an even greater reversal up into shouts of thanks and praise. We sang this morning that happy song, 10,000 Reasons. That song begins and ends its chorus with the same line. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my soul, worship his holy name. Sing like never before, O my soul, I'll worship your holy name. The beginning and end of that song framed by that chorus. So in verses 1 through 3 of our song, and in verses 11 through 12 of our song, David gives reasons why he praises God. Five or six reasons, depending on how you count them. In verses 1 through 3, David says, I will extol you, O Lord. And why? Because God reversed David's downfall. He silenced his enemies. He heard David's cry and he healed his diseases. He saved him from death, from the grave. And the Lord gets glory from that reversal. But the praise is still in crescendo because in verses 11 through 12, continuing in the same theme of God's reversal, David brings in a variation. Here he looks past his circumstances, things that are outside of him like enemies and disease and even death, and he looks inward to his heart. You've turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. David is speaking of his heart and his mourning has become gladness. His sackcloth has become dancing. He goes from like a burlap to a tuxedo and from falling down to getting down. David dances. Application point number one, dance. But clothing and dancing is not actually the point. Those are just the symbols, heart signs that say something about the inner core of the man. And that inner core is now extolling God's praises. David says that God has reversed his fortunes, drawn him up out of the depths, clothed him with gladness. And for what purpose? Verse 12, that his glory may sing his praise and not be silent. We begin in verse 1 by extolling God, a very powerful word for praise. And yet we've notched it up here, really quite dramatically. The little phrase, my glory, has a few things densely packed into it. 
It's comprehensive of the entirety of the man. His heart, his soul, his mind, his strength are all wrapped into it, as is his prosperity, his wealth, his splendor. It literally means that, wealthy splendor. You see, David has found a prosperity that cannot be shaken, cannot be moved, that it's not fleeting or material or imagined, not self-derived. And that prosperity attaches to his entire person. David's glory will sing God's praise. Now, there is a problem here, a tension Remember, David almost died, and yet God rescued him. But eventually, David did succumb to his greatest enemy, that was death. So where is David's voice now? Where is the glory of his praise? Where is his eternal thanksgiving? As he asked, does the dust in his grave, wherever that is, yet praise him? And this is where we must see that we are not only talking about David. You see, David founded a royal dynasty of kings, a dynasty founded not on David's prosperous power, but on the promise of God, that God would establish his throne forever. So David, in this sense, is not merely an individual. He is connected to his entire royal line. Once David dies and that line of kings come, in a sense, They act for him. They represent him. And many generations down the line, David had a son, an heir to his throne, whose glory, whose heart, whose soul, whose mind, whose strength, whose great prosperity gave unmatched praise to the Lord Yahweh, God. This son of David is Jesus Jesus, who in the short view view had, had foes who gloated over him, who cried in dismay like David at, the, at God's abandonment of him. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus, who was taken down by the schemes of Satan and the wounds of men and descended into the pit, into the grave. And why did this happen? The reason was so that David and we can sing a song like Psalm 30. Remember this key point. The actions of the royal line speak for the entire royal family, even the entire nation. So even though David sinned like us and eventually went down into the grave, not every one of his sons did. Not this one. Because Jesus, who bore our sin for us, who acted in our place, picked up our vanity and our self-assurance and our pride at our successes and our conceit, and he buried those things in his body, in the grave. Our sin died with Jesus. And yet, Jesus, the royal heir, did not stay dead. God drew him up. God healed his mortal wounds. He brought up his soul from Sheol, and he restored him to life, as it says in verse 4, from among the dead. This Jesus lives. Jesus, whose glory magnifies the praise of God. And how does it magnify it? How does it multiply the grace of God? Because as Jesus goes, so goes the royal family. So goes the kingdom. Where Jesus descends, 
the kingdom descends. But where Jesus ascends, the kingdom ascends. And this is the message of hope we proclaim. By faith, we too can enter that royal family. We too can come into that kingdom. So if God takes glory from bringing Jesus down, he gets amplified glory in bringing Jesus back up, way up into resurrected glory. So if he has a people by faith who go down with his son, down in death because of sin, but up into life, new life, resurrected life, then we, like little Christs, that is what Christian means, who share in his glory, will sing the praise of God's glorious grace in saving us into his church, into his kingdom, as David says, forever. You may hear the echoes of Ephesians chapter 1 in what I just said. We will not read that this morning, but that is the central argument there that our whole purpose, ours and David's, is to amplify the glory of God tracking the redemptive story of God in our attachment by faith to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We go down briefly. We come up forever. And that amplification of praise comes through the radical reversals of fortune in the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our second point in Psalm 30, God gets glory by bringing us low and by bringing us up. And the glory is amplified. Our third point, point, look at the big picture of prosperity. Look at the big picture of prosperity. There is great hope in this psalm that we are about to get into. But here in this sermon is where we meet a division of those in this room. I know that here there are some who do not know the God that I have been speaking of. The God who wants glory, even glory from you. And that God will not allow his glory to be robbed by any of us for too long. So for you who have not trusted this God, the question for you today, right now, is this. Will you? believe in him? Will you believe that his son, Jesus, is the one who rescues us from the pit of death and gives us the right to eternal life to sing his praises? Will you find your prosperity in him? If you will not, the hope in this psalm is not for you. Without this Jesus, if you continue to trust your own prosperity, your own strong mountain, you will have no hope on that last day. One of our Christian poets wrote, to grieve and yet have no comforter, to be wounded and yet have no healer, to be weary and yet know no resting place. That is the world's hard lot. And you, my friend, who has not believed in this God and his power to save, that is your hard lot too. But wait with us a little. We have a tremendous message of hope. We who have believed. Because verse 5 of the psalm gives us the big picture of our lives today in Christ. The big picture of our prosperity. 
for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. My grandfather used to joke that being alive is very dangerous. And it is. Whether we sin like David and actually personally see the consequences of our sin, or we live the faithful life of Christians who must suffer suffer many things to enter the kingdom of God, or we merely experience what everyone experiences in a fallen world, the hardships and the pains of life, we all come into with some regularity the night of weeping, as David calls it, followed by the morning of joy. Verse 5 catches this kind of cycle in our lives, a cycle of suffering and joy and suffering and joy as surely as the day follows the night, follows the day. And verse 5, I think, speaks to the bigger picture of all of our lives because there is this cycle, this natural cycle, this sometimes maddening cycle to joy and sorrow in our lives. Health turns to sickness, turns to health again, only to ebb out one last time. Struggles with sin follow. Struggles with purity follow. Struggles with sin until the struggles end in death. In our relationships, our loved ones come and go. Members of First Baptist, we know this one too well. The coming and going of those that we love here so much. And even within the relationships that last our whole lives, there are seasons of highs and lows of love and estrangement, of heat and cold. And all of this is in God's providence and in verse 5. But verse 5 teaches us something crucial about this cycle, these repeated cycles. It is that the cycle is not, it's not circular. It's not symmetrical. And here's what, here's what I mean. Here's what I think verse 5 means. Instead of a circle in these activities, the cycle of suffering is, is, uh, and joy is more like a, an ellipse, like, like a, an oval, where the long, gentle curve is the favor of the Lord and the short, sharp changes is his anger, what David calls the night of mourning. For the believer, to put it another way, the low is not as low as the high is high. That is the big picture we are to keep our eyes drawn to. That in the Lord, as we live our lives, the weeping is, in some sense, only for a moment. Whereas the joy is, in another sense, for a lifetime. The long summer day of joy, praising God, is far greater, far better, far more enduring, far more essential to who we really are than the brief summer nights of weeping. The psalm says, like the west side is to the east side, like the Yankees are to the Mets, so is the favor of the Lord to his anger. These things are opposite, but they are not equal. God, the artist of the big picture and the director of all the detail within it, can assure us of this because of his sovereign control. But let's think about that. How does that actually work in our lives? Don't we all lose things sometimes that are irreplaceable, that bring a lifetime of sorrow 
or regret? Or sometimes, do we never even gain the things that we long for? Things that we may weep for for a lifetime? The irreplaceably lost. Fertility. A baby child. Happiness in marriage. Some of us have lost those things or have never even known them. For others, the irreplaceable is not getting accepted to that university. It's life-changing. It is the dream job that you were let go from. It is the hope of a relationship with that man or that woman that you know now will never be. Or for others, it may be the need to retire when you don't have the money to do so. For all of us, if we stretch out the timeline, it is our death. We're going to lose our lives. Irreplaceable. How then does the weeping tarry only for the night when what is lost is never really regained? Does his anger really endure only for a moment? Does his favor really last? There are answers to this in this psalm, and the answers are yes and amen. It lasts. And I think it answers this in two ways. These are sort of our two takeaways for this morning. First, does God's favor actually last a lifetime? For the Christian, yes. Because even in suffering, even in God's anger, you are receiving his perfect favor. This can be difficult to bear, difficult to hear, and even more difficult to grasp in the midst of personal pain. But look at how God treated his servant David. At the end of the story in this psalm, what do we know? Did David get his prosperity back? We're not sure. It doesn't tell us because we don't need to know. What we need to know, what what we ought to know is that David, who began by only uh, acknowledging the Lord, you know know that sort of Christian tick, yeah, praise the Lord for my prosperity, is now shouting out in praise with every fiber of his being. David's looking back at his suffering and saying, thank you, God, that you took me through that. And why would he say thank you? Because he is so much better off than he once was. He is now ever closer to the Lord that he loves. Once he was in cold dismay, but now he feels the warm hold of his God on him. He has gained tremendously from the night of weeping. So much so that, the li- that life is now a morning of joy. Have you found that the longer you suffer, the closer you feel to his presence? Some of you may know the American missionary to Burma, Adoniram Judson from the 19th century. He endured a life of immense cyclical suffering, a loss of every kind of prosperity that I think we could imagine. I'm going to read a small extract from a letter that he wrote to a friend At this point in Judson's life, he had lost his wife and several of his children to disease. In the midst of that, he was enduring great persecution and imprisonment and slander and rejection, opposition to his ministry. And after that, he wrote this letter to his friend, a fellow missionary who herself had just been widowed and lost several children of her own. 
Here's how, like, David in verse 5, Judson looked at it all with that big picture lens, that spiritual lens of life. He writes, You are now drinking the bitter cup whose dregs I am somewhat acquainted with. I venture to say that it is far bitterer than you expected. I can assure you that months and months of heart-rending anguish are before you, whether you will or not. I can only advise you to take the cup with both hands and sit down quietly to the bitter repast which God has appointed for your sanctification. While therefore your tears flow, let a due proportion be tears of joy, for you will soon learn a secret that there is sweetness at the bottom. You will find it the sweetest cup that you ever tasted in all your life. You will find heaven coming near to you. Does God's favor really last a lifetime? Indeed it does, because even in suffering, there is sweetness at the bottom as you grow ever closer to Christ, your morning of joy. So when we suffer, and we surely will, we should pray, as David does, for deliverance from the trial. But pray, too, for all the gain, all the spiritual sweetness that comes to you through it. You may be surprised how God benefits you, how what you lost is replaced by something even better, a brighter morning of joy in the Lord than you had ever seen before. To my young friends here, young in your faith, ask an old saint about this. They'll tell you about how God does this often. God's favor lasts a lifetime because even in our suffering in Christ, our losses as his children fall under his favor. Second, does the psalm actually teach us that God's favor, his prosperity, lasts a lifetime? Yes, and more than a lifetime because our prosperity is in the God who lives forever. David concluded the psalm in verse 12 by saying, he will give thanks to the Lord forever. But that is not the end of the story in the psalm. The last act in sequence of time is actually verse 4. David has been looking back and speaking about the past and his heart, but in verse 4, he turns the mic to you and to me. And he says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. The holy name there that David invokes has a tremendous meaning in it. You see, all throughout the psalm, David has been saying the name Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. And it's not uncommon to invoke that special covenant name of God in the Psalms. But eight times in 12 verses, it's particularly concentrated. And here in verse 4, he even spins it up a bit. He calls us to join him, but he adds a call to give thanks to his holy name. There's a footnote you can see there in your ESV Bibles uh, to that phrase, his holy name, because it means more than just holy name. Inside that that phrasing here, to the Hebrew writer who wrote this, to the Hebrew listener who first heard this psalm, this would key off in the mind a, a very important verse back in Exodus. 
right after God declares his name Yahweh to Moses. So it says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 15, right after God introduces this powerful covenant name Yahweh, it says, God says, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The forever name to be remembered forever is what this psalm is pointing us to. In this point in Exodus, it comes at a time in the history of God's people of great suffering. And just as God introduces himself, introduces his forever name to be remembered throughout all generations, he gives a promise, a promise that is linked to that name. If that name stands, so does this promise. That promise comes just two verses later in verse 17. God says, I promise that I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt to the lands of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. What for ancient Israel was an exodus from Egypt into the land of the Canaanites is now for David and for us, his saints, a promise to enter his kingdom. The promise attached to his forever name, Yahweh. That is for us, even the church of God. A promise that God will bring us up and through many afflictions, through much suffering, into the full entrance in the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth, into a land and a life of complete and unshaken prosperity in the presence of God, a land of milk and of honey, a land of true prosperity. For there in that new world, the hard cycles of life will be forever broken. Even though our lives hold this cyclical pattern, the story of God's redemptive history is really linear, driving toward that final kingdom that will stand forever. So that name that is forever, that is remembered throughout all generations, brings an end to our nights of weeping and a new morning of forever joy, the favor of the Lord for an eternal lifetime with him. God's favor really does last a lifetime. It lasts an eternity because he is eternal. And so David says, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. That is Psalm 30. Beware prosperity. God gets glory on the way down and on the way up. And look at the big picture of prosperity. God's favor rests on you forever. So give thanks with me, saints, to his holy name, the name that is forever, that will be remembered throughout all generations to eternity. Let's pray. Oh God, your word is immense. It promises things from eternity past to eternity future. And it takes us along with them. Lord, I pray that we would beware prosperity, that we would see your glory in the darkest hour and the brightest. Lord, I pray that we would see in our lives now how much you really do favor us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.